What are you reading now? And what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today? Or in the future for that matter? And what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched? And hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me. This is episode 3 of That Reminds Me. Adish Khanna and Ashish Kulkarni spoke about a book and a podcast episode, both of which were about aspects of the internet. The book they discussed was Gretchen McCulloch's Because Internet, which explores how the internet has changed language and linguistics. They also discussed an episode from the Flash Forward podcast titled Mothers Against Digital Dangers, which imagines a science fiction future in which moral outrage leads to the internet being banned. While discussing the topics covered in the book, Adish and Ashish also digressed a lot into nostalgia for the internet of the 1990s and the early 2000s. This episode was recorded on 19th May 2020. Good afternoon, Adish. How are things? Good afternoon, Ashish. Things are fine. I've been back at work for a couple of weeks. My factories have been functioning and we've had about two weeks now of the of COVID cases declining in India. Yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, things are slowly but surely beginning to look better. We hope so. And with that nice and auspicious introduction done, let's dive straight into what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. Uh, So for the benefit of our audience, this episode might end up sounding slightly rehearsed because this is a third time that uh, we are recording uh, at least the introduction to the two books or the two things that we're going to speak about uh, today. But for the sake of uh, all of you, let's hope that third time lucky. But speaking of the books, uh, Adish, we're going to be speaking about two things today. One, we're going to be speaking about a book called Because Internet. Uh, this is written by a lady called Gretchen McCulloch and the other thing that we're going to be speaking about is a podcast recording called, well, I mean, the podcast is called Flash Forward and the episode was about mothers against digital danger. That's right. And as a further uh, connection, the, the podcast Flash Forward is also where I first came to know about the book Because Internet. Wonderful. Great. So speaking of which, let's begin with Because uh, Internet uh, and a sort of trifecta of questions, if you will, to begin with. Could you tell the audience a little bit, A, about the author, B, about the book, and C, how you chanced upon the book? Let's start with the author. The author is someone who, a few years ago, was doing postgraduate studies. I can't remember right now if it was a master's program or a PhD program Mm -hmm. in linguistics. As part of this, she had her own blog, dedicated to linguistics in which he would talk not just about the linguistics of traditional language but about language as it was being used on the internet not just formal language but slang as well as part of this her blog got noticed and she was invited to write an article about the grammar of the doge meme which i think is six or seven years old by now the, the, one, the, the one which features a slightly confused looking dog saying, wow, uh, such pride, much wow, etc., etc. <laughs> yes. And this article in turn got her the attention of a book publisher who asked her to write a 
book about how language was being used on the internet because internet is that book how did i come to know about uh, this book as i said uh, flash forward the podcast i'm a paying subscriber to that podcast and as a paying subscriber i get a free episode every month one of those episodes was an interview with reshin mukalok alright okay uh, the book is endlessly fascinating and uh, hopefully by the end of our conversation about it our audience will agree what we are going to do is follow more or less the same layout that you've used in the blog post that you uh, in which you've spoken about the book so we will go chapter by chapter but there'll be a bit of skipping forward every now and then depending upon a my questions to you and b your responses but let's begin at the beginning always sensible thing to do let's begin <laughs> with chapter 1 which is informal writing and i'm sure you caught on to the alice in wonderland reference uh, arish but i'm hoping some of the audience will also have uh no i'm afraid i missed that but where can you but we'll be we'll right not, nothing nothing wrong with that absolutely okay so informal writing which is chapter 1 now uh one thing that i wanted to speak about and i actually did not end up speaking too much about it in the recording that will now be lost in the midst of time the idea of what is formal and informal itself keeps changing over time right i'm not sure but what's your idea about that i would think so because say for example i clearly remember when we started writing emails to uh, each when i say each other i don't necessarily mean you and i but when people first started using emails there was a bit of a transitional period where emails would be written the way letters are written and slowly but surely stuff that would have horrified purists back then stuff such as say for example eom being end of message or eod being end of day slowly but surely started being acceptable in if not uh, everyday language at least in offices so the idea of what is formal and what is informal in terms of language and communication is constantly evolving or at least that's how i look at it well i'm not sure i agree because uh, at the time we grew up and went to school we were taught how to write formal and informal letters mm-hmm. and while abbreviations and similar never made it into our school curriculum in uh, when we were writing formal letters mm-hmm. i think abbreviations have been part of language and especially part of work communication for over 100 years and this is a point which gretchen mccullock has made in her book okay the most obvious example i can think of uh, based on what you just said is of course the word okay and there's a lot of controversy about how that word itself came to be but i'm guess i'm guessing that's what you are thinking of i mean not the word specifically but along those lines well not uh, agreed not the word okay specifically but we for uh, for example the word etc has been abbreviated down to the ampersand sign followed by a c and that has been part of ledgers and formal writing for at least 100 or 200 years so okay. your your specific point that what is formal and informal keeps changing i'm not contradicting it but uh, i'm not sure i agree with your example of it <laughs> okay the good news about uh, the little back and forth that we are having right now adhist is uh, it's kind of related to the second point that you make in this particular section the internet has made 
not just informal written language but also the development of informal written language much more archivable and as a consequence accessible so what might have ended up being a very long and perhaps pointless debate in the pre-internet era is now very much verifiable and that's one of the good things about the internet yeah but uh, let's get back to the first and foundational point yeah. which i think is important because uh, it's really going to drive the whole book all right the key idea that Gretchen McCulloch starts off with is that language can be either written or uh, spoken and language can be either formal or informal and for a very long time all written language was formal or almost all written language was formal mm-hmm. but once the internet came along it made informal writing both widespread and as you said accessible uh, to researchers yep leading to not just and this is a bit of a meta reference leading to not just books such as this but in fact the conversation that we are having right now well true and uh, again because this is i feel an important point let me just cover all the bases before we go on further please so we've said that language can be spoken or written and language can be uh, formal or informal spoken and informal is similar to what we're doing right now talking to each other or what any conversation between friends or family members mm-hmm. is usually like formal speaking can be a, a business meeting a classroom lecture a formal lecture given in an auditorium formal written is what we uh, what we are very familiar with both in literature as also non-fiction writing mm-hmm. and informal written language back in the day would be letters sent between friends and family members again but those were not too frequent those were difficult to send and the real explosion in informal written language has been in chats and when i say chats i mean internet chat programs emails sent between friends and dominantly sms and text messages in messaging apps yep about which i'm sure we shall speak uh, extensively in the chapters to come but one weird uh, thing that this reminded me of is the fact that kurt vonnegut used to begin his essays with the phrase uh, dearly beloved and coming from the generation that he did and given the kind of books that he wrote i'm fairly well confident is perhaps too strong a word to use but it would be a good guess to say that most modern writers wouldn't begin essays in that way and that to me is perhaps one example of how written semi formal communication also changes over time well language is amazing that way because you can always find a boundary line between formal and informal and exploit it as much as you like especially if you're Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> true and that the boundary that you speak of between the formal and the informal is where pretty much creativity resides and flourishes and flourishes absolutely 
All right. Uh, let's move on to the second chapter, which is about language and society. And the very first point that you mentioned in the second chapter is one that I find endlessly fascinating. For the benefit of the audience, uh, let me quickly describe it. There are uh, two people, and knowing me, I'm going to murder their names, but I'll go ahead and butcher them anyways. George Wenker and Jules Gellerand, the first one in Germany, the second one in France, decided to try and map how phrases change in terms of distance in their own particular countries. So how everyday phrases uh, change, not just in terms of pronunciation, but presumably also in terms of meaning and context. And this was not very far away from each other. We are talking of relatively smaller distances because the field workers you mentioned actually went out on bicycles. We'll have to expand on that a bit, but yes. let's get into what uh, these two people did. Yeah. So the first person is someone called George Winker who was interested in how the German language varied over the territory of Germany. And he was in the late 19th century, there was a well-functioning school system all over Germany. So George Benker had the bright idea of sending a postcard care of the school teacher in every local village school. And mm -hmm. on this postcard, he would request them. Here's a list of 40 things or phrases. Can you please send me uh, back a postcard saying what this is called in your village? Right. And uh, more, many of these teachers did send the postcard back. So he was able to create what is now called a language atlas, which shows how words change over geography. Now, because all his work was being done on postcards, Venker ended up missing out on the differences in pronunciation. Right. So if there were subtle differences in how vowels are spoken and how uh, their pronunciation changes uh, over distance, Venker was missing out on that. That being said, the difference in what was being used for a particular activity uh, if there were if there were phrases that changed from village to village or district to district Wenka was able to com uh, compile those following Wenker, the same activity was done in france by as you said this gentleman called jules gilleron mm -hmm. and realizing that there would be issues of pronunciation and he trained field workers, assigned each of them to particular districts of France. And this was the time when the bicycle had just been invented. So mm -hmm. he gave the field workers bicycles or they had their own bicycles. That's not mentioned in the book. With this new technological innovation, these field workers were able to uh, cover a lot of distance. Record not just the differences in words, but the differences in pronunciations, which they had been trained to do, and report this back to Gilleron. Now, all this is context to the whole chapter, and the context which it sets up is to establish that, yes, even in a single country, which you might think of as homogeneous, language varies from region to region. This was first shown in the late 19th century. But what researchers of linguistics today have as an advantage is Twitter. Because Twitter lets a user mention in every tweet 
and this is done automatically for the most part where that tweet is being sent from right twitter also has an open api so that someone who wants to run through the entire universe of public not marked private or protected tweets can simply run a database query and scrape all of these so a dedicated linguist can pick up tweets from the different cities of say the united states of america which is the research that has been discussed in this chapter and mm-hmm. see are there particular words or phrases that are unique to these regions or more or less popular in these regions i can imagine so before we uh, speak about twitter and how uh, the internet has enabled slang and phrases to spread much more quickly than would have been the case otherwise let me give you one example from the marathi language i'll use the english equivalent of the two words and i'll also not speak about the people involved to protect their privacy but in depending upon which part of maharashtra you come from say for example you're searching for uh, lost keys in a room you might either say that you found the keys or you might say that you've met the keys like okay. i said depending upon which part of the state you are from and uh, i have seen uh, passionate quarrels break out uh, in front of me where both parties are convinced that the other party is completely wrong in terms of the phrase that they use in terms <laughs> of grammar rules whereas if you think about it from their own perspective they were both completely right true and like i said almost every indian language i'm sure must uh, be going through the same uh, variations endlessly but that's pretty much the point of how language evolves it depends upon the context it depends upon what you're using that word for and so many other things but now let's uh, segue into the point that you raised uh, when you spoke about twitter slang and the usage of words tends to spread much much more quickly now in a way we are living in a very accelerated time frame for the development of language and slang than ever before that's true and uh, in the interest of uh, keeping this podcast universally friendly we are simply going to use the phrase af rather than explain what it means for but feel free to go ahead and uh, take a look at af the phrase but it started apparently in la and miami not only would i not have known this had i not read your blog post but I, it never would have struck me to ask where this might originate and now it's part of everyday discourse for not just i but i'm sure anybody else who speaks online which is pretty much the entire planet now yeah so uh, as this book tells us the coinage af which is an adverb used to say that an adjective is very much so an adjective started uh, when the researchers examined this huge database of tweets they found that uh, af started popping up more and more in los angeles and miami and these are cities which are on different ends of the united states of america but what they have in common is a large hispanic population so it's likely that this coinage started among the in the hispanic community and whether it started in la and miami it first spread among hispanics and then lit and it then spread among hispanics all over the country and from all over the country it spread into other communities as well 
Right. And like I said, it's fascinating about how it so quickly jumps, not just geographical boundaries, but presumably also age and uh, gender boundaries. Speaking of gender, let's make that the next point of our discussion. The next two points that you mentioned are uh, fascinating to me. Very quickly, uh, Gretchen McCulloch uh, mentions that women are more likely than men to spread changes in language. And as uh, she presumably goes on to say, and you mentioned, it's difficult to isolate behavior and social roles from gender. Now, the second point is a sort of a disclaimer to the first one, but I find it fascinating that women are more likely than men to spread changes in language. If you can uh, recall uh, off the top of your head, how did she reach this conclusion? Uh, no, I'm afraid I can't recall off the top of my head, but there were two widely separated data sets which she cited in this. And one is written language from 200 years ago or two okay. centuries ago, maybe not 200 years ago, but from the 19th century, mm-hmm. perhaps even further back, wherein when you look at the letters which are sent by women in the pre-typewriter, pre-printing era, Mm -hmm. women will change the spelling of a word more often. And 10 or 20 years later, men will start using the new spelling as well. And this was seen in the Twitter data set as well. And, And I can't recall off the top of my mind uh, what she what data set she used to uh, make the claim that this happens not just for changes in spelling or phrasing but also in pronunciation but she did make this claim as well regular listeners uh, will know that we have a little bit of a joke going about how this podcast might one day provide endless uh, employment and fodder for sociologists but this is yet another instance Well, I think uh, this linguist has already uh, provided fodder to the sociologists. We are just (laughs) doing the good work of spreading it along. True. Also, uh, uh, that reminds me, reference that crops up from here. uh, And I'm fairly sure you've read this uh, story yourself, uh, Adish. But Isaac Asimov had a story, unless I'm confusing the author with somebody else, about how uh, the discovery of an alien civilization and the attempt to communicate with them became much easier when the communication strategy used by uh, one of the scientists' mothers, if I remember correctly, was put into play. If you have read... I have read this book and it is uh, not not a book, a short story, and it is by Isaac Asimov. It is a lovely story. I'm not sure it is all that relevant to the spread of new coinages, but we'll talk about it quickly anyway before we move on. Mm -hmm. And... This is uh, Isaac Asimov noticing how the women he knew, and this was back in the 40s or 50s, would on the telephone speak about, well, they would speak about everything, but the way they would talk would be to just run an entire stream of speech without necessarily letting the other person interject. And he thought that this was a great way to overcome the 10 or 20 minute gap 
that would occur if you had to communicate with someone at the edge of the solar system and you were uh, and your messages were uh, being passed at the speed of light um there are aspects in because internet especially her chapter about internet chat which yep. quite strongly act against this idea and talk about how conversation and speech is a series of turns of speaking mm-hmm. so i think it's not the greatest example uh, for this book but it is a nice story and uh, we'll try to look up the name of the story and encourage all our listeners to read it yeah absolutely and like you said it's not uh, the most direct relevance over here so the whole point of the podcast is to speak of things that uh, we are reminded of and i was irresistibly reminded of this story when i read about uh, gender and communication more broadly speaking all right let's move on to uh, towards the end of the chapter uh, you have one brief point uh, which if you don't mind uh, i would love you to elaborate on a little bit weak social ties drive a change in language much fast much faster than strong ties do the reason i'm fascinated with this is because it seems kind of counterintuitive let's first explain to our listeners what weak ties and strong ties are strong okay. ties are the people whom you interact with frequently or intimately so your close friends your wife your husband your partner your family members people whom you're very close to and who you are talking to often weak ties are people who you don't hang out with that much or that often or that intimately these could be this could be someone you run into at the gym someone right. you exchange uh, notes with on facebook or over text every 3 or 4 months or so to see what's going on mm-hmm. without going into the research that she cites gretchen mccullock says that if there is a change in language it spreads very quickly you using this network of weak ties right but it lasts long once in once it enters a network of people who are connected with strong ties yeah that makes sense so the uh, change might happen more in the in groups so to speak but the spread will happen much faster in the out groups that's right okay all right okay uh, adarsh unless you have anything to add uh, to chapter 2 uh, i know we haven't spoken about the quantiki hypothesis we'll get to that in just a second but ap- apart from that is there anything you wanted to mention in chapter 2 go ahead otherwise let's speak quantiki yeah so quantiki uh, is again a digression but when when we are talking about strong ties and weak ties there is a group of researchers which set up a simulated social network not a real one in which they defined how everyone was connected to each other using weak ties or strong ties and mm-hmm. they ran the simulation to see how uh, new coinages and changes in language spread and uh, the what we just spoke about that weak ties help changes to spread and strong ties make those changes entrenched is the result of this uh, computer simulation and what it reminded me of was another book i've read uh, called see people 
by Christina Thompson, which is about the history of Polynesia. Absolutely nothing related to linguistics, unless you call, uh, well, that's not true because it speaks a lot about how the Polynesian language is constant from one end of the uh, Pacific Ocean to the other. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's get past <laughs> that digression to the digression. It also talked about uh, using computer simulation to uh, establish a theory or to test a hypothesis. And the simulation which C people talks about is one which was done in the early history of digital com- uh, computing, the 1950s or 1960s. Mm-hmm. And what that did was to debunk the Contiki hypothesis. And the Contiki hypothesis was that Polynesia, the islands like Hawaii, Fiji, Vanuatu, uh, New Zealand, Tahiti, were colonized by settlers who had left from the coast of South America. And it's called the Contiki hypothesis because the uh, person who came up with this was a Norseman called Thorheidal. He built a raft called the Contiki, set off from off the coast of South America and eventually reached Polynesia. And he said that now that I've done it, I've shown that it is possible to do so. And therefore, my hypothesis should be taken seriously. But what the computer simulation, which was done in the 1950s or 1960s, was it mapped the entire Pacific Ocean, looked at what the weather conditions and ocean currents, etc., would be in every month of the year. And... After that, ran a simulation that if you leave at any particular point in the year from the coast of Peru, will you reach Polynesia? And what they found is that not one in a million, but in zero cases, could you actually reach Polynesia from the coast of South America without having your raft or your... uh, voyage be broken up and destroyed along the way fascinating uh, so i once uh, had a very long time ago i read about the contiki for the first time in i think a collection of short stories drawn from the reader's digest and this is a very 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 weird tangential reference but i also seem to remember recall reading um, about how P.G. Woodhouse was not the biggest fan of Reader's Digest, the magazine. I'm not quite sure why. And I might have my wires crossed entirely. But it's so a, a digression to a digression, if you will. Yeah. And uh, for any listeners who might be wondering that if the simulation has debunked it, how did Thor Herdal uh, make it across? Yeah. The, ans- the answer is that uh, Thor Herdal did not set off from the coast of South America. He built the raft loaded it onto a modern day ship and set off from about, I don't know, half a kilometer or one, the raft was lowered lowered down about a kilometer off the coast from a modern day ship because on the coast itself, it couldn't make it past the waves. Right. As a statistician, uh, I can't help but uh, wonder when you say this, Sadish, that uh, so we are talking about the mortality rate of all such attempts in that simulation being 100%. So 
it just was not possible it's not as if a 100 drafts might have set off and one survived none survived yeah it it's and it's not just a question of surviving you uh, it it might have survived but ocean currents could uh, would have taken it to a patch of open ocean where whoever was on the raft would have run out of food and supplies ah okay all right uh, moving on to the next chapter now which is about internet uh, people and gretchen uh, mcculloch uh, uses taxonomy which is a good callback to an earlier episode where we spoke about taxonomy and classification but she divides people into five major types people who she refers to them as i'm going to use the labels now old internet semi internet people full internet people pre internet people and finally post internet people most of these terms are fairly self explanatory in the sense that you are able to classify people uh, into one or the other fairly easily but for a my benefit and also the listeners benefit could you briefly speak about semi internet and full internet just so that just so that we are all on the same page uh, i'll speak about everyone so that there's no confusion at all sure so old old internet people are people who grew up without an internet but came of age or either as the internet was also coming of age or when or a little before the uh, internet uh, coming of age so these are people who started using the internet when it were when it was first invented and a lot of these are people who used the internet before there was anything called the world wide web mm-hmm. and by the nature of the internet at that time such people had to be technically adept so people who were engineers or who had taught themselves computer programming and their internet language was full of technical jargon semi semi internet people are those who were not extremely old when they first encountered the internet but who never made it a habit and so usually they use the internet on and off to come and check their email so on and so forth pre internet people are the ones who spent almost all their life before the internet was widespread and they joined the internet so late that all they know are facebook youtube and touch screens they weren't using the internet on desktop com- computers etc full internet people are the ones who grew up when the internet was already established and are what we call digital natives and post internet people are the ones who were born after the internet was already established and have never known a world without the internet and even if they don't use the internet themselves they're the influence of the internet keeps touching their language and lives right and i'm guessing over here that we will fall depending on our age i'm speaking about you and i specifically somewhere between or around semi internet and full internet people i would say maybe between old and full this is probably not a classification that works all that well outside the west of course but it works well enough right okay uh, so we we might end up using these terms uh, as we continue further along in our uh, discussion 
But the next point that I wanted to speak to you about uh, is one that I find uh, endlessly fascinating because it's the kind of communication that I think is a very popular today and b in a sense could only have been driven by the internet, both the goods and the bads of it. Ephemeral messaging, which in to use simpler English simply means that communication that is not permanent. Once the user, once the sender sends it across and once the sendee receives it, it so to speak automatically self-destructs. Yeah, so we are talking about things like Snapchat, Instagram stories, and live streams which are not recorded or archived for the future. Uh, I had the weirdest, uh, that reminds me moment uh, right now, Adish, uh, when I use the phrase self-destruct, it took me back to the beginning of a movie called Mission Impossible 2. I suppose that was our first introduction to ephemeral messages. Uh, it's The, the self-destructing message was uh, part of every Mission, Mission Impossible movie, not just Mission Impossible 2, though Mission Impossible 2 did make uh, it very cool using self-destructing sunglasses. <laughs> yes. And it was uh, the Mission Impossible uh, before it was a series of movies with Tom Cruise was a television series, I think, in the 70s or 80s, though That's I've right. not seen that myself. But that also had these messages that would self-destruct in 30 seconds after you had finished them. Our generation was cool too. We just didn't know it. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly right. we still don't. <laughs> more than uh, usual let's very quickly move on so uh, the reason I wanted to speak about this and the reason I found this so interesting Adist was because uh, you use a phrase and I'm sure uh, Gretchen McCulloch uses it herself and one that I think we will need to spend a little bit of time over uh, when we speak about ephemeral messages and a couple of related points that you mentioned context collapse could you briefly explain what this phrase means and if possible, uh, provide an example so that our audience understands what we are speaking about? Yeah, so this is very much Gretchen McCulloch's phrase that I've simply copied down in my notes. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that most internet messages or uh, internet platforms are by default public especially yep. social networks like uh, Twitter and Facebook, mm -hmm. where if you post something, you may have in your mind that it will be read by a certain person or certain set of people, which could be your friend, your crush, your family member. It, you don't even consider the possibility of the wider public seeing it, mm -hmm. but it is the internet. Practically anyone can see it. <laughs> if the message is referencing a certain bunch of shared experiences and in-joke, that's the context. The people who don't know this uh, shared uh, experience or shared in-joke don't know the context. And once they come across your message, and read it out of context, that's what Gretchen McCulloch calls context collapse. Like sociologists on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but uh, I uh, use that example only half jokingly, but 
the point is a very relevant one uh, given how in a sense fragmented communities on the internet have become and i suppose the fragmentation itself is a defensive reaction to how public the internet had become about say very roughly speaking 15 years ago or so but context collapse is a lovely phrase that helps at least me understand the internet so much better in terms of how it's like i said become its own walled gardens in many different contexts yeah and uh, walled gardens are one of the strategies being used by people to prevent context collapse mm-hmm. so what gretchen mccullough says is that there are three ways in which people can do it one is to use ephemeral messages which we just talked about yeah so a message that destroys itself uh, in a certain amount of time so that it doesn't stay around long enough for people outside of the context to see it right the other is to use different social networks or even different accounts on social networks based on who you want to have seeing your messages mhm so and linkedin uh, for that matter is a network that sort of by design has created its own professional context within it but this also uh, is the phenomenon of how you can have one instagram account which you tell your family members about and one instagram account which you tell only your close friends about yep yep absolutely all right uh we've already spent a fair bit of time on this chapter but i can't uh, help but speak about the last point because it was in a way uh, an eye opening moment for me the meaning of the phrase or the word however you want to describe it lol which stands of course for laughing out loud how the meaning of this phrase has changed over time it has become laced more with irony in the recent past than ever before earlier it just used to indicate you laughing at something but now lol can also mean you wanting to convey the message that it's not really laughable but let's use that as a reaction uh yeah it can uh, convey a message that hey this is unpleasant news but i don't want you to feel very upset about it so you throw a lol in at the end that was a really hard exam and i'm going to flunk lol <laughs> yep absolutely and which uh, is a very need way to segue into the uh, next chapter adarsh uh, which is how it is all but impossible to speak about or convey sarcasm or convey irony in a written form in which uh, about which gretchen mcculloch has spoken a whole lot in fact it's pretty much a tone of the entire chapter over here in fact the chapter is called typographical tone of voice right and is all about how breaking away from standard typography or the standard uh, practices of typing or writing can help create uh, a or project a tone of voice that normally you would think is impossible uh, in written language and only possible in spe- speech yep and as you mentioned in the uh, chapter uh, sorry in the specific write up relating to this chapter there is the existence of apparently a symbol that uh, conveys the fact that irony is being used right now the tilde if i'm pronouncing it correctly t i l d e and correct me if i'm wrong but this is on the keyboard the key that lies just above the tab key that's right so a uh, sorry please go ahead just to clarify this is this was not 
designed to convey irony nor was it uh, nor is it the only symbol uh, used uh, to uh, convey irony but this is the first one which was completely new to me it uh, it was apparently used in corners of the internet that i've never been to before and i'm sorry to say neither have i uh, the point that i wanted to raise uh, when you spoke about this artist is and maybe this is just like i said me being a grouchy old man but half the joy in using irony is that feeling of identification and empathy if you will when the when one of the audience members recognizes that you used irony using tilde or any other symbol just takes away more than half of the fun of using irony maybe it's just me two separate responses to that the first okay. is that gretchen mukalop would say that it's not half the joy of using irony it's the entire joy of using irony and the second is that because this uh, sarcasm tilde was used only in specific corners of the internet and i think uh, the specific corner in question was tumblr users it was in fact an in joke among tumblr users okay so so doubly some, meta if you understand some, correctly somebody who was coming to tumblr for the first time say, who who was up till now only used to say twitter or to wordpress and typepad blogs would not know this at all as you and i did not know about it until we read about it in because internet and that's a classic example of the wall garden that you were speaking of earlier and not even wall because these are not uh, private blogs or uh, these are not uh, blogs which have been blocked off to the general public it's just that the social network created among themselves was so tight and uh, that other people were just not joining it yep also a great way to think of the five uh, way classification that gretchen mcculloch uses because i suppose some of these are also related to age and how familiar you are with the internet right all right let's move on to the next chapter one that i myself am personally very 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 non conversant with emoji and other internet gestures and let me begin with a bit of a personal anecdote uh, just to help everybody understand how bad i am at this particular game there is a there is an emoji especially in whatsapp but i suppose it exists in other softwares as well which shows a uh, a smiling face and two outstretched palms on either side of the face towards the bottom for the longest time i was under the impression that this emoji essentially means people putting their hand up as if to say i don't know and that is how i used it and to my horror i discovered very recently that it apparently signifies a hug and the thing that i the reason i'm so horrified by it is because i've been using this icon in or emoji in a variety of ways without once realizing that what i'm essentially saying to the other person is i want to hug you when i quite clearly did not oh dear <laughs> the pitfalls of trying to learn a whole new language which doesn't even contain words uh yeah but again to come to the point which uh, this book has made mm -hmm. is that there are two types of emojis mm -hmm. and some of these act as replacement for words right and these are 
generally the emoji which you find in the tab for foods or animals or musical instruments or uh, types of transport etc etc mm-hmm. and these are not used very often and the other emoji the other type of emoji are all the smiley faces all the hand gestures and body gestures and these are emojis which replace n- not words but what linguists call gestures or emblems yep and these are the parts of nonverbal communication and i'd say not parts of nonverbal communication they are the nonverbal parts of communication it's so uh, let me just uh, so i don't know Smi- if, uh, smile smiling nodding clapping leaning back leaning forward running away exactly yeah but it's weird how most of these emojis have now also uh, stand in substitutes for words and another example that i have uh, from my own personal experience i had once asked uh, a person who used to work at this uh, institute where i was teaching that i needed to reschedule a class and would that person help me out with it by way of response the person sent across an emoji that showed a pig i honestly didn't quite know what to make of it because the person is usually very very polite indeed can you guess uh, adist what was being done over here swine for its fine <laughs> no uh, so the picture of the pig was meant to denote suwar which is the hindi word for pig which is supposed to be a word play on sure oh safe to say that i never would have got it in a million years of course once a person found out that i had no clue what was going on the person was very apologetic about it but in especially that person's age group this was just a very accepted way of saying sure and out of force of habit he had used this particular emoji like i said it's hard to keep track uh, true, uh, truly but i i think this calls back to the previous chapter about yes. language as a form of groups uh, signaling absolutely all right just uh, one further point that i wanted to speak about here but of course uh, we'll speak about anything else that you want to bring up with regard to this chapter adist uh, i had no clue that softbank invoked invented the uh, emoji yeah for a very long time uh, japanese cell phone ca- ca- carriers and softbank started life as a uh, cell phone carrier mm-hmm. in japan were using a different messaging standard from the rest of the world and a different uh, data standard from the rest, re- rest of the world and the idea of sending pictures uh, over message became very popular in japan and to con- conserve bandwidth rather than have rather than send the picture itself softbank would load pictures into every phone's memory and only send a code to look up which picture to uh, display which is the birth of the emoji and they had a good thing going competing uh, cell phone providers in japan came up with their own and all 
all of this didn't match. So if you were sending one emoji from one network to another, it's uh, it was possible that your uh, recipient would get something completely different from uh, what you had sent. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of this uh, non-standardization across networks, stand, uh, SoftBank went to Unicode, which is the international organization for standardizing data, and said, hey, we have this uh, list of uh, emoticons or emoji. Can you guys take it up and turn it into an international standard? Unicode said, this is not our problem. Hmm. When Apple invented the iPhone and wanted to uh, sell it in Japan, they found that Japanese users would absolutely not uh, accept a phone that did not have emoji. So at this point, Apple went to Unicode and said, we really need you to make this an ongoing standard. Gmail or rather Google also joined in and this was when they wanted to do it for Gmail and Google chat and not just and well before uh, they had their Android uh, platform. And at this point, Unicode finally said, okay, we'll get involved. And now they have this interesting process of adding new emoji every year. It's perhaps not the most appropriate uh, reference to give because I can't for the life of me remember the entire story. But wasn't there a story, a Sherlock Holmes story involving dancing men that perhaps is the first example of uh, emojis being used? Although, like I said, maybe I'm missing things or crossing wires far too much. Uh, Not so much uh, emoji as that a different position in the dance was corresponding to a different letter. So this was possibly more like the Wingdings font than emoji itself. (laughs) Okay. All right. Also, I'll make a mental note to myself to go and uh, read that story all over again. One further point that I can't uh, resist speaking about, I know we would move on to the next chapter is what I said. But uh, speaking of Gmail, uh, I just realized that there are a lot of things that are used as symbols in everyday life that perhaps are understandable to people of a certain age, but uh, not if you are younger than that age. The symbol for Gmail itself being an envelope, for example, um, the symbol or the icon for phones on all of our phones, which references a old-fashioned phone, which will make more sense to youngsters. And I can go on and on, but there are multiple such examples of uh, iconography that makes sense only if you're of a particular age. That's true. And uh, the flash-forward episode, which was the interview of Gretchen McCulloch, uh, that which uh, put me on to the book has Gretchen McCulloch talk about how even the expression lol has become one such thing mm-hmm. where young people no longer know that it stands for laughing out loud and some of them pronounce it lol and when she asks them what do you think this is they think hey it's just like okay it's been a word for for as long as it is it doesn't have to stand for anything Remarkable, remarkable. Okay, uh, one final point uh, from this uh, book from my side, uh, Adish, before we move on to the second episode, unless you have something to add. Uh, my word for the day, and very quickly, I did not know that a word called fatic exists. For the benefit of the audience, could you please uh, 
explain what the word is and the context in this particular case? Yeah, so fatigue is something which is related to feeling rather than meaning. Uh, and which is why we talk about speaking emphatically. But a fatic expression is something which conveys feelings, whether good feelings or bad feelings, or which sets context. So, for example, if someone asks, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing great. Even if you might, for example, be suffering from eight weeks of lockdown, the I'm doing great is not to be taken literally. It's to be taken as providing context that you are glad to have this conversation happening and for it to continue. Hmm. I want to uh, call back to the very first thing that we said to each other at the start of this episode, but let's not. Which was, good afternoon and how are you doing? Yeah, but uh, I hope that I replied <laughs> in a manner that was both fatic and semantic. No, absolutely, absolutely. All right. So, uh, Adisht, unless I have missed uh, asking you about something that you really wanted to speak about, we can move ahead to Mothers Against Digital Danger. Yes, let's, because I'm very keen to move ahead to that. <laughs> Once again, uh, in the case of the second uh, post that you've written that we're going to speak about, Mothers Against Digital Danger. Would you mind uh, contextualizing what we are going to be speaking about for our audience? Yeah, so as I said in the introduction, Flash Forward is a podcast which looks at possible science fictional-esque scenarios that might come about in the future. And then it starts off with a small skit that shows this future moves on to what would be the circumstances in the present that would bring about that future and then talks about what the consequences of such a future would be. The future that this episode talks about is one where the internet has vanished. Okay. And Rose Evelet, who is the host and producer of this podcast, says that this is a future which her listeners keep asking her to explore and it's one she's very interested in and what she has done what whatever her research about this possible future has done is that the internet is technically so robust that it's very unlikely that any kind of disaster or technical issue will take the internet down and According to her, the only possible path for the internet to vanish is that there is a moral panic surrounding the internet and there is a social movement which becomes convinced that the internet is evil and a force for bad. And this social movement spreads so quickly that the internet is actually banned. I have a lot of meta pointers to think about uh, or mention in response to what you just said. Uh, let's begin with the last thought that struck me. When you say uh, the message spreads very quickly, I can't help but imagine that the only way it would spread so quickly is precisely because of the internet. Well, true, but 
uh, it's been a long time since I've listened to this. Mm-hmm. But I'll quickly run through the opening skit or play which this episode starts with. And it features a mother talking about how her son has hung out on all the wrong kinds of uh, chat rooms mm-hmm. and become a, a mass shooter. So there is this very heartfelt speech which the actor makes about what has led up to this and how her son has been radicalized by hanging out in chat rooms with racists and sexists and has killed people and that the only way she sees to stop such things happening in the future is to shut the internet off itself. Maybe this is just me being a big fan of the ability to communicate and access information that I never would have been able to otherwise, but I can't, and like I said, probably as a mental block on my part, but it's to me overwhelmingly like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, it seems like that to me too. It seemed like that to Rose Eveleth as well. (laughs) But uh, what was interesting about the episode is that she really gave uh, citations and examples from the past about how quickly moral panics spread to show that this is not that even though this is a very one-sided view and uh, an overly panicked view it doesn't necessarily mean that it will not occur and she uh, talks a lot. The episode title is a reference to an actual social movement in the United States called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Right, right. Which basically, in the course of about five years, created this mass outrage against drunk driving and was able to get it criminalized very quickly. And while both of us think that uh, drunk driving is something far less useful than the internet, the fact that uh, something that was so widely accepted and not thought of as worthy of criminal law was criminalized so quickly and turned into uh, something outrageous so quickly suggests that it's not entirely... uh, impossible for the same to happen with the internet. This is one aspect. The second aspect is that the internet has had so many moral panics already. Such as? Well, the one which the episode talks about is a time cover story from the 1990s, which made the case that something like 80% of the internet was pornography. Uh, Okay, the couple of points that I really wanted to uh, speak about that this sort of tangentially reminded me of. First, uh, I'm having trouble understanding the difference between a moral panic and a panic. So say, for example, the famous broadcast of uh, the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, that would have led to a panic, right? Not a moral panic. That's right. Okay. Uh, And the second thing is... uh, Weirdly, this reminded me of a point that Tyler Cowen had made uh, 
Tyler Cowen is a an economist at George Mason runs a popular blog Marginal Revolution the point that he had made when somebody had asked him a question about what he foresaw as the biggest challenge in terms of colonizing Mars he said the biggest problem to him was not necessarily technological it was a sort of the lord of the flies scenario who exactly governs the people who live there and on what basis I think we've talked about this the last time we discussed the flash forward episode. Absolutely. And the reason that uh, it reminded me of this is because it's not necessarily the first thing that I would think of when I think of uh, challenges pertaining to the internet, a moral panic. But the more I think about it, the more there is some credence to the idea that it at least deserves some thought. I'm still not sure I agree entirely that that is the biggest challenge facing the internet in the years to come. obviously it's not the biggest uh, challenge facing the internet mm-hmm. but according to uh, this podcast it's possibly the only realistic existential threat hmm Not, would you very briefly well, elaborate on that please well all other challenges would relate to what the internet might change into how internet quality might degrade or these are all incremental changes which if they changes for the worse we could in theory dial them back or and hopefully dial them back when we're talking about what would happen that would turn the internet off completely bring it down to zero for good Mhm her theory is that a moral panic is the only thing that could do it okay okay all right and just one final point uh, before uh, we wrap up at least from uh, my and others unless you have something to add the last point that you uh, mention and very quickly let me read it out for the benefit of the audience one slight exasperation about both the episode and about infinite detail when people complain about a corporate controlled internet which specific part are they grumbling about and what do they want in its place as you mentioned because you can get behind co-op or academic free software for internet protocols and god knows i agree with you there if the grumbling is more about amazon and google being the user interface my feelings are more mixed minor i would argue not even mixed but i find myself being more than slightly exasperated about this point the net benefit to the world of not specifically only amazon and google but of modern corporations and how they have fashioned the internet is i think vastly underrated um so two points to that let me first explain what infinite detail is which you right. mentioned yeah. infinite detail is a fictional science fictional book whose author is interviewed in this episode of flash forward and that episode also uh, i'm sorry that book infinite detail also has a scenario where the internet is killed and it is killed by a bunch of uh, radical hackers who remember the time of say the early 90s when the internet was very new and exciting and who are exasperated about how the internet is now mostly a giant shopping mall <laughs> so they write a virus which takes down the internet and in and in their manifesto encourage all the internet's users to set up their 
own community internets which are free from corporate influence i am sorry to interrupt you adish but i am irresistibly reminded of mastodon uh mastodon the network that proposed, was supposed to replace proposed, twitter twitter uh, or facebook yeah and yeah that's the one that was the uh, context of infinite detail okay and infinite detail i've said uh, one slight exasperation but uh, it this is also such an interesting premise that this is a book i very much like to read and i do have a lot of nostalgia and fond memories of the early 90s internet yeah uh, pre amazon pre google and i think this gets into the part of because internet which talks about uh, semi internet people or full, full internet people and how those people compared to the post internet people remember the time when it was new and evolving rather than all pervasive i would uh, mostly agree uh, the only thing i'll say is uh, when i teach opportunity costs especially to people who are just starting to learn economics for the first time i often reference a limp biscuit song which contains the lines uh, with the good comes a bad and the bad comes a good and i view the internet in pretty similar fashion so it's never going and, to be perfect and uh, in a nice connection uh, i think that's also from mission impossible to yes yes it very much is i was about to bring that point up myself but uh absolutely it it is one of the songs in that album well i think my counterpoint uh, even though you've not drawn out your point uh, entirely yet mm-hmm. but i'll try and preempt you is to bring up something which we talked about in the episode uh, before this about locusts and the point you made about fragility yeah and one worry about uh, having google or amazon drive most of the innovation which is happening is that it does build in certain fragility wherein they can then withdraw that innovation if it doesn't fit their business model this is something which they have done in the past to your and my great horror when they killed google reader amen amen and i suppose it will happen again as well so don't get me wrong i'm not uh, an out and out fan of google and amazon but i would much rather live in a world in which they exist than one in which they don't i completely agree but i would also much rather live in a world where google and amazon exist but where the output of free and open source software and how usable it is is as good as it used to be in the period from say 1995 to 2005 when both these products as also the user interface was as good or ahead of what google and amazon were putting out so the thing that this reminds me most strongly of others what all of what you said right now i find myself nodding in agreement uh, as you spoke uh, and this we've had more than a fair share of uh, lyrics references right now but i very strongly i'm reminded of john lennon's you may say i'm a dreamer but i'm not the only one 
just to elaborate a little more because i think this is something both of us uh, feel strongly about and perhaps we are dating ourselves as old internet people and uh, grumpy old men uh-huh. but but the fact that photo storage the options for creating a photo album online mm-hmm. are mostly google or facebook or apple's iphotos yep and on almost all of these you are beholden to their respective platforms user interface and how they decide an album should be created or displayed etc you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to if you're worried about uh, these companies doing facial recognition on your photos and this in itself would not be so bad except that in the past few years there has not been a single decent platform created for self hosting your photo albums yep yep agreed but i suppose there's a tension of living in the world that we live in we would like it to be slightly better in one direction and slightly worse if you will in the other and finding that happy balance is i suppose going to be a never ending process of course all right on that slightly both dispiriting as well as optimistic note adrist i think it's time we call time on this particular episode it is indeed thank you so much for the conversation and i hope to see you again likewise adrist likewise talk to and you soon that is both a phatic and a semantic statement <laughs> All right. Content on a better note. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to That Reminds Me, episode 3. Today's conversation was between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. Ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and Adish's blog is adish.net. That's a a d i s h t.net. That reminds me is a podcast produced by Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. You can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me where you can leave your comments. You can also email us. Our address is feedback@thatreminds.me. The podcast is supported in part by a grant from Emergent Ventures. The show music is The Carnival of the Animals performed by the Seattle Youth Symphony courtesy of Mozopen at musopen.org. 